Hello, Gorge. It's Josh. Just hopping on real quick to say that there was a technical error in the recording of this episode. It happened on my end. Um, It was recording through my laptop instead of my microphone um, because I knew I have a new microphone and I'm a dum-dum and didn't set it up correctly. So in this episode, my voice is really, really quiet. We tried to fix it in post, but... Um, It is what it is. We still think it's a great episode. And uh, with that, please enjoy this episode on Lost Highway. Welcome to another episode of Blood House, the show where we talk about art house horror films. I'm your host, Joshua Conkle. And I'm your co-hostess with the most is Drusilla Adeline. How are you doing this week, Josh? Oh, fine. Everything's good. Um, my boyfriend moved in, as you know, <gasps> so I've been doing a little redecorating, buying some new furniture pieces, um, really just loving that domestic life. Um, I loving that so much for you you're finally getting the u-haul experience that we get to have all the time (laughs) um also my boyfriend is in carmel your hometown wait what wait wait whoa 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 whoa. why is your boyfriend in my suburban indiana hometown right now is he trying to dig up dirt on me (laughs) yeah he's like visiting people who met you in middle school (laughs) oh god oh god (laughs) no teachers no he's from the same hometown as you i forgot about that yeah that's amazing well tell him to have a really really good time at our public library slash grocery store I think of what? <laughs> yup. Our public library is currently under construction at the moment. Uh-huh. So uh, they have moved it to a recently closed down grocery store because Indiana is a food desert. So all the books are in like the fridge cases and stuff like that. That's so cool. Actually. It's bat shit. You, if crazy. you Google like Carmel, Indiana library, you'll find photos of it. It's really, really weird. That's it's in like, a marsh. Oh my gosh. That's like in, when I lived in Brooklyn, in Greenpoint, there's a Dwayne Reed drugstore that used to be a beautiful like movie theater. And everything's painted white and incredibly banal. But if you look up, it's painted over, but like the design of the roof is like domed and incredibly elaborate. And there's a balcony that's like not in use. <laughs> it's just really weird. I mean, it's um, also like living in Los Angeles because there's like... Uh, a Barnes and Noble in the Valley that also used to be a movie theater, and yeah. there's like every single store in DTLA used to be a movie theater. My storage unit, there's a plaque on it that's like, "This was LA's first film studio, opened in 1905 or whatever." You know, that's what I mean? depressing. <laughs> I know a lot of people don't notice, but whenever you watch silent films, almost always they're filmed in Silver Lake and Echo Park because that mm. used to be where the film industry was in the. 1910s and 20s. Yeah. Um, what's up? Have you seen anything cool? Yeah, I had like a really lovely little movie week. Hmm. Um, so last week I got to go see The Birds at Senespia, which was so much fun. Um, and and as I mentioned on the podcast, however, like only mere days after that, I was just like scrolling through like, oh, what's playing near me right now? Hmm. Um. And one of my favorite movies of all time, 
uh, Boonwell's The Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie is back in theaters right now. Oh, wow. Um, for a 50th anniversary 4K restoration, and Rialto has it, like, and I saw that it was, like, playing at the Lemley near me, and I was like, oh, cool, they're doing, like, one of those one-day-only things where they take a classic movie and they stick it in the Lemley for one day, once a month. Cool. Dope. But then I found out, no, it's an all-week run. They're doing it at every Lemley uh in los angeles and it's also playing nationally in week runs and it's also like when i got there to see it it wasn't in like one of the smaller theaters it was in like the main theater where i saw like the batman recently uh-huh oh my god so i texted friends and i was like this isn't a drill oh my god they're showing discreet charm it's Boonwell on the big screen we're going and two of my friends were like, yeah, awesome, sure, totally, let's go. And then they got there and they're like, we've never seen this. We don't, we've seen his movie where he cuts the eye open. What is, th- what is this? And I was yeah. like, oh, we don't have enough time for me to kind of describe what this is going to be. Uh, hold on tight, eat your popcorn, hope you have fun. They loved it. I love that movie so much. Um, so it's like... French surrealism or right. Spanish surrealism in France uh, in the early 70s. And it is like bone dry humor. So angsty. It has all of the like, <laughs> I hate the world petulant wit of like a 14 year old boy, but mm-hmm. being done by a 70 year old man. Uh, <laughs> it is so ungodly funny. Everything from Mr. Show to Monty Python just t- stole everything from those movies um and it is it's so witty it's so smart it's so beautiful and so haunting i forgot there was like three different ghost set pieces in this movie hmm. i totally forgot how beautiful it was um because it, it, i used to watch it all the time in high school it was like one of the very first foreign language films that i saw which explains a lot about my personality um <laughs> but it was a lovely lovely evening and then afterwards, we were all like, well, that movie was all about drinking champagne and martinis and just, like, being making fun of hoity-toity rich French society. Let's go uh, over to Damon's afterwards and get some food, because we live in Glendale, and that's a thing that we can right. do. Yeah. Because people want to get cocktails and stuff like that. Um, and the only other, like, there was, like, no, it was, like, Tuesday night at Damon's in Glendale, at, like, 10 p.m., so there was no one there, except for one other table on the opposite end of the restaurant. Um, and midway through our meal, our waiter came up to us and was like, hey, you guys are talking about movies and stuff, right? And we were like, yeah, we are, because we're a bunch of dweebs. Uh, and he was like, well, that little old lady over there at that table was in this great old movie called Alien, and we were like, what? What? What are you talking about? It was Veronica Cartwright. Oh my god! And it was, like, super spooky because a friend of mine had just seen her on the big screen in The Birds as a child. Um, And Veronica, um, if you listened to last week's episode, um, is, you know, had been on Debt for Filth with Michael Verratti and I. Uh, And so we knew her a little bit from that. And I was like, oh my god, Veronica's here? What? It was so spooky and so lovely. Um, And of course she left like five minutes later uh, with her little group while we were like ordering more food. So we weren't able to go say hi to her. But like, Los Angeles is insane, man. It's insane. She's an icon. She was on an episode of Sabrina, but I didn't get to meet her because it wasn't my episode. So I wasn't on set. Um, 
I love her so much. I what do you think? Speaking of Veronica Cartwright, this is a little bit of a, a sidestep off topic, but what do you think about the discovery a few years ago that her character in Alien was trans? Oh, I kind of, yes, I know about this. I know about this because I'd never heard about it before until Veronica Cartwright told me about it. Ah. (laughs) On that episode. Yeah, because I'm not a big fan of Alien. Oh, really? So that's when I'm going to get roasted by everyone right now. I love it. I think it's a perfect movie. I've only seen the first one. It's the only one that's really special. Actually, no, I've seen the Winona Ryder one. That's very bad. Mm -hmm. But in my defense, Winona Ryder was in it. It was pretty queer-coded. Uh, and the love of my life, Brad Dourif, was also in it. So, yeah. yeah, I get it. But I've never seen Aliens or Alien Cubed, whatever the third one is. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I like I never really got into Alien. I I thought the first one was just fine and kind of dull. Uh, oh, sorry, no, <laughs> sorry, unexpected. I, I it seems like such a true movie to me. I don't like sci-fi. Oh, uh, there you go. Sci-fi and fantasy, like medieval, like swords and Lord of the Rings, that kind of stuff. Not both of those are just not for me. No, I love both of those, but yeah. <laughs> Sorry, okay. um, but we had Veronica on Dead for Filth, and uh, we were like, she's an icon, she's amazing. We're but we're like gonna tread lightly. We're not gonna mention Alien. We're not going to ask her about Hitchcock. We're not going to ask her about these things. And she just volunteered them all her own. And she brought up the trans thing in Alien, which I'd never heard about. And she had mentioned that, um, you know, she has short haircut and, like, was directed to play it a little bit more tomboyish. And she was like, cool, that's fun. I never get to play stuff like that. Awesome. Um, And then, you know, like, years later, like, recently... People pointed out to her that in Aliens, apparently, there's, like, an info card about the cast, um, about the crew of the first movie that, Mm -hmm. uh, spoiler alert, don't make it to the second movie. (laughs) Yeah, it's 80 years later in the second movie. Okay, well, that's good to know. Um, (laughs) Yeah, about, like, oh, this is what the crew of that ship was like. And apparently on there, there's a mention that, like, her character uh, is doing well mentally after undergoing a sex change operation or something like that. And I was like, that's dope. Yeah, (laughs) Like, to slip that in there, that's fucking dope. It even says something like self-selected sex change or something like that. I love that so much. Something that she chose. Yeah, to, like, continue, like, to ensure that that autonomy is there. The fact is, did James Cameron do that one? I think so, yeah. Okay. I normally don't give him a lot of credit, but you know what? Good for you, Jim. In the 80s? That's dope! Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just a tiny little detail, but it's really cool. Um, So Aliens is very different than Alien in that it's just, like, a full-on action blockbuster. And it's very well made, but it is about, like... And it's got, like, Bill Paxton in it and stuff like that. But it's about the military going into that planet to, like, nuke it, basically. Is that the one that everyone's like, it's not a sci-fi movie, it's really a metaphor for Vietnam? I've never heard that, but probably it has that feeling because they're, like, soldiers. Because I've heard people be like, the first one's a haunted house movie. The second one is a war movie. The third one is a prison movie. That's true. And I was like... A war movie and a prison movie are also movies I don't watch. You're not selling me on this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, I don't know. I So, like, I love Veronica. I think she's the greatest. I also Amazing. love her in Witches of Eastwick with her cherry yep. moment. 
Um, she's in everything that's good. She is just a seal, seal, seal of approval. Invasion um, of the Body Snatchers. Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Incredible. Yes, I mean she's the she's the iconic final image of that movie. Yeah, she she is that movie. That movie has such a great cast. Oh my god, Jeff Goldblum and it. Donald Sutherland. Ah, mm-hmm. uh, uh, anyway, and that hot guy from The Brood and Black Christmas. I always forget his name. Art Carney. Oh yeah, yeah. Whenever he shows up in something, I'm like, oh, it's the guy from The Brood, not Oliver <laughs> Reed, the other hot guy from The Brood. Yeah. Anyway. Uh, while I was busy hobnobbing with celebrities and watching pretentious art house movies, what, have you watched anything of late, Josh? Oh, well, yeah, I have. I mean, this was a big weekend of new releases for horror fans because, I mean, what did we get? We got Prey, we got Bodies, Bodies, Bodies in New York and L.A., we got um, Sandman on Netflix, we got They Slash Them. There are probably other things, um, but... Yeah, I saw Bodies, Bodies, Bodies yesterday. I texted you immediately after. I loved it so much. It's so dark and funny. It's so cleverly written and performed. Rachel Sennett, I think, is a comedic genius. Um, it really nails the way that some like narcissistic people have stolen mental health and social justice language in order to like talk about themselves nonstop because the characters are constantly saying like oh that's very triggering or you're silencing me or like using all of these very twittery buzzwords and it's just so funny and clever and i just i loved it i can't stop thinking about it mm-hmm. yeah i um i haven't seen it in theaters yet but as some listeners may know i designed the teaser poster for it Mm-hmm. Um, and so I got the opportunity to watch it months ago. Um, I didn't finish it cause I got annoyed <laughs> cause I annoyed? hate Pete Davidson. Oh, okay. so they, like, it, I got to a scene where like, it was just, um, Amanda and Pete Davidson, like in like some like rich parents office talking mm-hmm. uh, about stuff. And he was like, I fuck like, and I was like, I fucking, I'm, I'm crawling out of my skin. I need to turn this off. I get it. But I love Lee Pace. I think he's the hottest man alive. I love yeah. Rachel. Like she is so funny. Um, the, like the female cast of this movie is so good, but it's also just like, I know so many of these people and I hate those people in my life so much that this movie just like, it triggered me. Um, it's so funny. It's very upset. So spot on and true to life. Yeah, and true to this cultural moment. And it's nice to see someone just eviscerate that. But you know, this movie isn't making fun of quote unquote wokeness. It's not a conservative movie. It's 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 just commenting on how some bad faith actors in progressive circles use these terms because they're narcissists and allows mm-hmm. them to talk about themselves constantly. But the yeah. other fun thing is like, it is also who done it. So you got to watch them all like <laughs> eat it. Yeah. Yeah. And it, and it, and I, and I will say it isn't really a horror movie as much as it is a who done it. So it's more like clue, um, which is one of the director's um, points of reference. Um, it's more yes. like that. Yeah, no, we got a lot of strong words from A24 during the building of the campaign. They were like, this is not a slasher movie. This is not, not, not a slasher movie. We cannot let people think that this is a slasher movie. And everyone's yeah, like, it's really a new A24 slasher movie. But they're like, it's a whodunit. <laughs> it is Agatha Christie by way of Charlie XCX. Um, yeah, I, exactly that. And I don't think it's even interested in scaring people. No, it's not. Um, 
the only horror comp I could think of, a lot of people were comparing it to Scream, which I think is way off the mark. You super off the mark. Yeah. Um, It's only like Scream in that it's cleverly written with snappy dialogue. Otherwise, not at all like Scream. But But that's every 90s movie. (laughs) True. It's true. Everything Kevin Williamson wrote. Um, It did make me think of April Fool's Day a bit. Yes. I was. a movie I love, but. But that also might get into spoiler territory as to what's going on in the movie. Yes. Um, yeah. But yeah, it's not a slasher movie because there isn't, there isn't a masked hooded figure running around the house. It is so much close. It's actually closer to Giallo movies a little bit than slasher it movies. It is kind of Bay of Blood-ish. Or... Yeah, Bay of Blood is a really <laughs> good call. Uh, even with like the torrential like thunderstorm, the whole movie. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's very goofy. Um, and even though you brought up spoilers, I will just say for listeners who think that I spoiled the movie, this does not have the same twist as April Fool's. Day, no, so don't it would be very twist. hard to spoil this movie. And once you finally see what's going on in this movie, you're going to be like, oh, God damn it. <laughs> like, it's so satisfying. <laughs> it's very satisfying. <laughs> um, yeah, it's very fun. Also, uh, I found out this week, speaking of bodies, 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 that I was nominated for a Golden Trailer Award for the teaser poster for Bodies, Bodies, Bodies. Oh my god, congratulations, so that's cute. Drew. That's thank so you. Great. So well deserved. Thank you, what thank you. What a talent. Um, oh, I just do I just do what A24 tells me. <laughs> don't we all? I mean, at the end of the day. <laughs> um, I, um, I also started watching Sandman this weekend, and I'm a longtime lover of those comic books, and it's such a good adaptation. I've watched really? four episodes of 10 and it's just so, so, so good. My only quibble is the presence of Patton Oswalt, who I have no bad feelings about whatsoever, but he does the voice of, of a bird character and his voice is so recognizable that it's like distracting to me. See, I and... do have bad feelings about Patton Oswalt. <laughs> Fair enough. I feel nothing. Based on that me. whole Teesler rant he did in a stand-up what? set years ago. Oh, Jesus. Not even years ago, like in the past five years. I had no idea. He had a whole rant in a stand-up bit a few years ago where he's like, people won't let RuPaul say the T-slur. And he's using the T-slur the whole time. He's like, come on. They're like, you can't use that word. And he's like, but RuPaul invented that word. You can't take that word away from RuPaul. And I'm like, I, wow. Oh my God. I'm sorry your wife died, but fuck you, sir. I just rolled my eyes so hard that they flew out of my head and (laughs) rolled across the room. I, I, I had no idea. That's so annoying and disgusting. It's a shame because well, I used to really, really love him. Because uh, he's like a big cinephile and set the new Beverly all the time. Um, but it's well, a shame. Someone trans person or trans ally that loves him set him straight after that. Maybe maybe he's in a different place now. I don't know. Yeah. I don't trust but... Netflix comedy specials for a lot of reasons. <laughs> no, but I need to see the Sandman um, because it's, great. it's Neil Gaiman is one of my blind spots. Like, as a figure, everyone's always like, I grew up on blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, I saw Coraline two years ago after friends bullied me to finally see it, and I thought it was fine. Um, My therapist is a gigantic Neil Gaiman fan, and when she found out that I was going to be working at, like, a big agency recently, Mm -hmm. she was like, are you going to work on the Sandman series? I was like, I don't know. She was like, oh my god, I'm so excited for that. You need to watch that as soon as it comes out. You need to read all the books. And I was like why there's a lot what 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 is there for me in this i don't know 
Uh, well, it's just a high goth. I mean, I don't know if mm-hmm. you'll like it or not, but there's, I mean, there's a ton of like rabid Gen X Sandman fans. Um, I mean, my therapist is a, a Gen X high goth, so yeah, it makes sense. Uh, it might be a little bit too fantasy for you. I don't know. I just, I love it. I love the adaptation so far. Um, of course, the show that I work on, Dead Boy Detectives, Dead Boy Detectives is a Sandman issue. It's Sandman issue 25. So we're it's technically a spinoff of it. Um, I just love it. Yeah. Can't recommend it enough. Love it. Cool. I'll have to give it a shot. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, shall we talk about the movie of the week? We shall. Chomping at the bit. Or champing at the bit. Champing at the bit. Thank you. <laughs> We've all seen 30 Rock. We know the difference. Yeah, exactly. Well, this is a movie from 1997, directed by the iconic David Lynch, starring Bill Pullman, Patricia Arquette, and Balthazar Getty. We are talking about Lost Highway. We've met before, haven't we? Yeah, I don't think so. At your house, don't you remember? No, I don't. As a matter of fact, I'm there right now. That's crazy, man. Call me. I like that. I think there's no such thing as a bad coincidence. to remember things my own way not necessarily the way they happened cue 90s goth music yes so <laughs> this is a movie i think that's considered by many to be david lynch's worst film or among his worst films whoa who the hell says that. that many many people feel i've that never way. heard this really really well it did kind of poorly at the time I feel all like of, I, all of his movies tend to uh mm-hmm. i always thought that people considered firewalk with me his worst one which is also wildly incorrect well that's at the bottom tier too i think dune is down there as well well dune belongs like, down there i think I he would agree dune. i haven't seen dune it's one of the it's i think it's the only david lynch movie i haven't seen to be honest um but yeah, I, I saw this movie in '97 in the theater. I was 16. It was oh it was the first David Lynch movie I saw in the theater. I've seen all of them in the theater since because it was just the first one that I was old enough to see. Mm-hmm. And I have to say, I really disliked it. I thought it was boring. I thought it was pretentious. And for years, all throughout art school and into my early 20s, I would tell people that I didn't like David Lynch because I found his work inaccessible and pretentious. And I grew up, and I don't feel that way at all anymore. Um, and so I was not excited to rewatch this and I really liked it when I watched it this week. So I, look how much I've grown. Um, look at you. I mean, do I like it as much as Blue Velvet or Mulholland Drive or Eraserhead? No, but I think even if this is David Lynch's worst movie, which I don't know if it is, David Lynch's worst movie is better than most people's best movie. This is so true. Little, yeah. It's a little bit like trying to pick out Beyonce's worst album or Alexander McQueen's worst season or whatever. It's like, okay, but it's still better than anything else that Mm -hmm. anyone else is doing. So, And Lost Highway is really important in his progression of his, like, storytelling, like, approach and his stylistic approach, um, which we'll get into. But, like, everything that everyone loves about Twin Peaks The Return and Mulholland Drive and Inland Empire kind of is all percolating in Lost Highway. And I will um, say, I love his L.A. phase because 
I yeah. love Los Angeles, and I love how he celebrates Los Angeles in these movies. Mm-hmm. It's just clear that he loves this town, too, and I love that. And I'm also from the Pacific Northwest, so I get the full spectrum in Lynch because I get my Twin <laughs> Peaks and Blue Velvet, and I get my L.A. It's so funny that he's so widely associated with the West Coast in both spectrums of it, considering yeah. that he is a he's a Midwestern boy at heart. I know, I know. <laughs> I love him so much. I'm so glad we finally got around to Lynch. You texted me um, not too long ago being like, I think it's time. We need to do David Lynch. And I was like, okay, okay. Um, And then comes to the question of, well, what's the horror David Lynch film? Every David Lynch movie, to some extent, is a horror movie. Mm -hmm. I believe. Um, Including The Elephant Man and including Street Story. Um, But what's the scariest one and what's the one that reads the most as a horror movie? In my opinion, Inland Empire is the scariest movie, but I don't want to get into that can of worms right now. (laughs) That three-hour-long, half-Polish can of worms right now. Um, Also because I just saw it in theaters very recently, and I was entirely too high. Um, So it's going to take me a few years to get back to that one. Um, But the the two that immediately popped to my head as being scariest, outside of that, are Fire Walk With Me... And Lost Highway. Um, And Lost Highway is kind of having a moment right now because it's the anniversary. It's back in theaters, which tickles me pink. Uh, It's Mm -hmm. had a very long run in a lot of art cinemas across the country. I was able to see it at the Los Feliz 3 theater, uh, part of the American Cinematheque, in advance of this episode to prep for it. Um it's was announced it's getting a criterion release um mm-hmm. in a few months so like it's having a moment so i thought it was a really really exciting one to talk about and because like you're saying it is widely you know under discussed we'll say yeah i mean secretly i was advocating for an eraserhead episode but i have faith that we'll get there eventually as long as we keep doing the show yeah we'll definitely get there eraserhead is also one like inland empire where i'm like once every five to ten years i can watch it <laughs> Yeah. It takes me something. But I've also reached the point where Eraserhead isn't a scary movie for me. Eraserhead is like a zen comfort movie for me. I love Eraserhead so much. It's my favorite David Lynch movie. And um, yeah, I, just, I don't know. We're not talking about Eraserhead. We're talking about... We're not talking about Lost Eraserhead. Target. See, so, my favorite David Lynch movie is a very selfish choice, but it's Elephant Man. But it's been Elephant Man since I was in high school. Um is so beautiful. I'm due for a rewatch. I loved your art. Thank you. Uh, I, yeah. yeah, I have to keep reminding myself that that happened because my brain wants to push it out because it was too traumatic to think about, like, <laughs> that David Lynch has to approve of my art. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so Lost Highway was also one that I saw in high school. Mm-hmm. I probably also would have been 17 when I saw it. Um, where was I? I think I'd probably seen, i definitely seen Mulholland Drive. I definitely seen Eraserhead, and I definitely seen Firewalk with Me. I hadn't seen Twin Peaks yet, but I'd seen Firewalk with Me, which was a fucking mistake. Um, <laughs> and I'd probably also seen Blue Velvet, maybe. Mm. I hadn't seen Wild at Heart yet. I hadn't seen Inland or Elephant Man or a lot of that stuff. Um, and I also hadn't really like gotten most of his movies mm-hmm. or really like 
I was at a point where like I couldn't list a single Lynch movie as being a movie I liked. Mm-hmm. But I liked experiencing them enough that I wanted to see more and I wanted to get it. So it was this kind of thing that I thought, like, if I just watch more of his movies, then the puzzle will come together. Which sort of is the case, sort of isn't the case. You just kind of have to rewatch the same movie a few times. Because mm-hmm. they all work on different logic. Um, and so when I first saw Lost Highway, it was the kind of thing of where, like you were saying, where I was, like, bored for a bit. Mm-hmm. And then I was fucking terrified and then i was deeply confused and then i finally settled into my confusion and was like oh okay i'm having fun again and then i was deeply terrified and then the ending left me very very confused and so i didn't yeah. know what to do with this thing because it was cool and it was weird um but it was it was both like more entertaining to me than Mulholland drive or uh, or at least less frustrating than Mulholland Drive and Blue Velvet when I was a teenager. But it was also so much more inaccessible Yeah, that it felt odd. I eventually saw it again um, at the American Cinematheque at the Egyptian Theater when The Return was coming out. They did a mm-hmm. whole series where they programmed his back catalog as double features, showed them on 35 with a B picture that would be, like, thematically linked that wasn't his. So, like, they did Wild at Heart with The Wizard of Oz. They did Firewalk with me with Lolita, which is five hours of rape and mental illness, and I do not recommend that double feature. I assume that's the Kubrick. Yeah, the Kubrick Lolita. Which is, like, if you can make it through that gauntlet, it's two very good movies together, but it's also, sure. like, that is a lot of sexual lot. assault happened to a lot of young women. It's yeah. not easy. Um, but they were doing Lost Highway with, again, Boone Wells, that obscure object of desire. And I really wanted to see the Boone Well movie. And I was like, well, I guess I'll rewatch Lost Highway. It's been a while. Um, and... Wow, it all was like it's it had been almost ten years and then all of a sudden it just clicked mm-hmm. into place for me. It just like sunk in immediately. I hadn't really thought about it in that time. I hadn't really did done any digging or investigation. I'd gotten more into Blue Velvet, I'd gotten more into Mulholland Drive, I'd gotten more into Twin Peaks and like the way some of his worlds work and the way his kind of language of cinema works. Um and then all of a sudden, Lost Highway just, like, locked into place perfectly for me. And it became one of my favorites. Yeah. Um, well, quick synopsis, such as it is with the movie. By <laughs> such Lynch, as it is. Um, Bill Pullman plays a jazz musician in L.A. named Fred, War- Fred Ward, right? No. Fred no. Hamilton. Fred Hamilton. Thank you. Fred Ward is an actor. Um, a jazz musician named Fred Hamilton, who um, is at a glamorous Hollywood party with his wife played by um, Patricia Arquette when a weird and terrifying mysterious stranger approaches him and this meeting played by Robert Blake who's truly terrifying and this meeting sends his life into a tailspin and then within this story we get a separate story about Balthazar Getty as a young man who sleeps with a gangster's girlfriend also played by Patricia Arquette And these two stories run parallel to each other and are kind of tied together by this mysterious stranger and double casting. So Patricia Quint, Patricia Arquette rather, plays the women in both stories. Um, 
There's a gangster in both stories played by Robert Loggia. How do you say his last name? Robert Loggia. Loggia. Um, yeah. Also, I, I have to retract. It's Fred Madison. Fred Madison. Thank you. As in do the Madison. Do the Madison. Uh, say, does anyone know how to Madison? <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know what else to say about the raw plot of this movie because it's so weird that you really... And we don't want to do spoilers either. People oh, we don't want to do spoilers, but it's too hard to talk about this without doing spoilers. <laughs> people have been commenting that we spoil movies, so we should try a little harder, I think. Well, I think the real... There's no way to spoil a movie other than to have your own reaction to it. But it's, this, this one's almost impossible to spoil. It's because, true. like, whatever. Um, but, yeah... Uh, um. When I saw this movie, so going in to watch it this weekend, I remembered literally nothing about it except for vibes and Robert Blake's character, who is so terrifying. You will never forget that character. Yeah, I I had had nightmares nightmares about him too. Um, Which only gets scarier when you find out that Robert Blake, only a few years later, murdered his wife. Murdered his wife and died in prison, I believe, right? Yeah, which is, both of those things are very close to this movie. Yes. Uh, the way he murdered his wife, too, is also super close to the way that someone gets murdered in this movie. So, uh, and the whole, like, you know, in prison until death is also very close to something in this movie. Uh, yeah. It, oh, oh, me, oh, my. So, so when so we let's... meet this mysterious man, uh, Fred is at a glamorous Hollywood party with his wife, and this and Robert Blake's character, the mysterious man, comes up to him, and he's bald with, like, a face that's painted kind of white, like an old... He's not bald, character. he has hair. Uh, he's very short. But he has a very, he's very like short hair. Correct, hair. He has, yeah, he has pale... He's a very, very pale face, and he has no eyebrows. Yeah. And really the no weird. eyebrows is always how you know someone's sinister. It's like that yeah. and drinking milk. You're like, what's really wrong <laughs> with you? But I can't pinpoint it. So this man comes up to him at a party and says, we've met before, and Bill Pullman's like, I don't think so. And then Robert Blake is like, I'm at your house right now, which doesn't make any sense, of course, because he's here at the party. And then Robert Blake hands him his cell phone. He's like, here you go. Call your house. And so Bill Pullman does. And then Robert Blake answers at his house. And so yeah. he's talking to Robert Blake at his house and at the party. Oh, and I forgot to mention, someone's been filming his house and leaving VHS tapes on his doorstep. So maybe this is the person who's doing it. He doesn't know. And um, it's truly terrifying. It's like one of the most uncanny, creepy scenes ever. I mean, the videotapes alone are super creepy because it's it's like a progression of three. They start come they you, they get one, uh, and it's like oh it's the it's someone to film the outside of our house. They get a second one, and it's that the camera goes into their house and then like follows along the hallway into their bedroom. But the creepiest thing, even more than that, is the camera's not, like, at person height and, like, bobbing up and down with footsteps. The camera is, like, lopped on top of the ceiling, almost. It's, like, the highest point it could be, and then just gliding. It's just, like, it is so un... Like, and there's, like... And it's so high up that it's looking straight down. So, like, there's no feet. There's no, like... How this camera is moving is truly a mystery, and it's totally horrifying. Two other things that happen in the that's kind of set this movie up that are very important to mention is that f- the very first thing that happens in this movie 
is that um, Fred Madison is awoken by someone ringing his doorbell and saying into the intercom, Dick Laurent is dead. He isn't able to see who it is. He runs downstairs, and by the time he gets to the door, there's no one there. Then the VHS tapes come, and when they start to see a tape that the camera is coming into their house, they uh, call the police, and two kind of, like, bumbling, lynching detectives show up, um, you know, interrogating them um, about things. uh, And when they are asked if they own... A video, you know, a video camera like this one. The very quick response from Patricia Arquette <clears throat> is that no, we don't. Fred doesn't like video cameras, and he says, "No, I like to remember things my own way, not necessarily the way things happened." Which yeah. is like the thesis of the movie. Yeah, truly. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, this movie is also, it's important to note, is doing, like, a neo-noir thing, sort of, like, 1940s gangster films, so you're going to get a lot of art deco architecture. You're going to get Patricia Arquette with the blunt bangs. You're going to get Fred as a jazz musician. You're getting a lot of those, like, very 1940s neo-noir genre aesthetics. They vibes. even lean super heavily into it. They, like, Patricia Arquette's characterization in the second half of the film when she's in the blonde wig, they intentionally dress her like um, Barbara Stanwyck in Double Indemnity. Mm-hmm. They kind of give her a Postman Always Rings Twice Double Indemnity style plot near the end of the movie, where she's kind of femme fatale luring Balthazar Getty into, like, we're going to run away together, but we got to commit this crime first, and you're going to do it, and here's the plan. Uh, but we also get, like, super, like, 1940s and like even earlier German expressionists kind of lighting on her face in a lot of scenes where it'll just get a stark cut off of just her eyes or like just her lips next to the phone or something like that. But then we also get like more, honestly the 90s is a really interesting point for Lynch because this and uh, Wild at Heart are his most like cineliterate movies ever that he's like baking in actual references to other movies because yeah. he doesn't really watch that many movies as a, like he saw movies growing up and then he watched movies when he went to AFI and he has not watched a movie since like the seventies. Um, and I love and respect him for that. <laughs> but for this movie and wild at heart, wild at heart, especially with the wizard of Oz homages. And I should also mention that, uh, lost highway is an original script written by Lynch and the wild at heart author, Barry Gifford. Right. Oh, uh, only time he's done that other than working with Mark Frost and Twin Peaks, um, have like direct references to 1940s film noir, 1940s and 50s film noir. There's even an extended homage to the Robert Aldrich movie Kiss Me Deadly, which has a very famous like nuclear ending, we'll say, um, where uh, a like cabin beach house explodes. Mm-hmm. Uh, which keeps kind of coming back in Lost Highway in the most, like, surreal Lynchian way. Um, and, you know, Robert Blake was also famously in In Cold Blood, uh, the adaptation of the Truman Capote novel. Mm-hmm. And, the, and Robert Loja obviously has a big gangster past. Um, so we get a lot, a lot of Lynch kind of living out his film noir fantasies, especially in the second story part of the movie 
um, because the second part feels just a little bit more artificial mm-hmm. than the rest. Um, but speaking of uh, Robert Blake and Robert Loja, let's talk about the cast for a minute because this is maybe the most stacked cast of any Lynch project. Um, and by stacked, I mean baffling. And um, wild cameos, too. Wild, wild cameos. cameos. So um, we get Balthazar Getty as uh, Pete Dayton, uh, who just appears kind of at one point in the movie. Uh, his father, his parents are like old 50s greasers as just matching leather jackets, matching leather jackets. They look like they just got back from a Stray Cats concert yeah. the entire movie. Um, and the dad is played Gary by Gary Busey. Busey. Yeah. Um, and his friends are played by Scott Coffey and Giovanni Ribisi. Which Scott Coffey was my childhood crush. I That is very specific. So, I know. Isn't it so specific? But I was so into him when I was a little boy in the 80s. And he's not like a super well-known actor. I never no. was. But, but what, I just was into him. What, what sparked that? Where, where did so, this come from? He's in Ferris Bueller, but only has like one line. and he's But he's so hot. He's in the classroom when the teacher is taking attendance uh-huh and then he has like a big role in this julia roberts 80s movie called satisfaction where she's in a girl band and he's i know you love band. satisfaction okay that makes sense and i i'm just i was in love with him and it's also in tales from the dark side the movie from the 80s too. oh yeah yeah um we also get um henry rollins yep of henry black rollins flag black flag um and jack keller from the big lebowski mm-hmm. um we also get um richard pryor near That's the end the of his life one, in a very weird uh role as um balthazar getty's boss at a garage yeah um i should also mention yeah balthazar getty is works as a mechanic at an auto shop um i was working at a garage when i first saw this movie so it was like even just a little weird. You worked at a garage. Here. You didn't that's know that. So, no, that's so hot. That's so like <laughs> Stephanie Zanoni in Grease too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I worked uh, at a tire barn in Indiana for oh, a few years. Um, I I mean, it's why I own a stupid old car now. Um, we also get Natasha Gregson Wagner. We also get um, Mink Stoll. Yeah, I saw her in the IMDb, but I couldn't. I don't remember her in the movie. So, without getting into spoilers, because this does happen early in the movie, okay. a character kind of goes through the legal process, we'll say. Uh-huh. Um, and we get a very film noir, very 1940s kind of depiction of that in the, the Hitchcock way of like, oh, all of a sudden the trial is over. And so yeah. you get the like time lapse version of that where you get the like the judge being the judge, you know, voiceover and stuff like that. Mink Stoll gives the voiceover of the jury foreman. Oh. So Mink Stoll is the one being like, we find the defendant guilty. So it's just VO. It's just VO. Got but it. like... I can't, I can't, I, it's amazing that it's Mink Stoll. I mean, it's amazing that it's Mink Stoll. And it makes Mink Stoll and Matthew Lillard the only two people who've both been in a John Waters and a David Lynch project. Amazing. Bless my sweet lovelies. Um... We also get Greg Travis from Showgirls fame, mm-hmm. famously the boat show guy, uh, mm-hmm. as a very inconsiderate driver on Mulholland Drive. 
Oh, um, we have to get to that scene in, in this movie, though, about tailgating. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then we also get a very unfortunate cameo later in the movie by someone who provided a lot of music for the film. Uh, oh. Marilyn Manson is in this movie. Um, playing a porn star. Mm-hmm. We see him at the end um, in kind of a threesome porno. Um, very Marilyn Manson out with, like, you know, fake contacts in and, like, tattoos and looking weird. Um, I mean, spoiler alert, but it's also a selling point for the movie. He does get murdered. <laughs> uh, or pretends to get murdered in the snuff porno film that he's in. So that's something. Um, his character is also kind of suggested to be kind of, like, creepy and sleazy, so, like... Yeah. Eh. But he does provide a lot of music that's in the movie, which is unfortunate. It's unfortunate. I think it's probably the least successful part of this movie is the music. It's <gasps> really, it, I it, wildly it, disagree. This The music really dates this movie. It feels very late 90s in a bad way. Usually David Lynch movies use like a lot of mid-century music, which is weirdly more timeless than music from the late 90s. <laughs> Um, I just don't, I don't like the music in this. Sorry, I think it's unsuccessful. I adore the music in this. It is, like, right down my alley. We get Smashing Pumpkins. We, like it opens that. to, uh, I'm... like the Rammstein kind of Marilyn <gasps> You Jackson. don't like Rammstein? No. Oh, my. Honey, I, I like love Rammstein. And so Rammstein showing up in a David Lynch movie is, like... It feels like it's broken. It feels like my brain is broken a little bit because these two things should not mesh. Um, we get David Bowie wrote a song for the movie with Brian Eno called I'm Deranged. Um, we get um, some This Mortal Coil. We get uh, Perfect Drug by Nine Inch Nails. Mm-hmm. We get This Magic Moment by Lou Reed, which is like one of the most I tender romantic. Cover. I love that cover. I just don't. I don't, I'm not here for the Rammstein, Marilyn Manson-ness of it. I do like Smashing Pumpkins. I do like Lou Reed. I I just don't think it fits this movie and it makes it feel dated to me. I think, I I think it fits like a glove. I think it's really, really cool. It all, it reminds me a lot of how around the same time Martin Scorsese made Bringing Out the Dead with Nicolas Cage and Patricia Arquette. Mm -hmm. Um, And that, like, Scorsese's well known for like wall to wall music um, and using a lot of good stuff and being friends with like the Rolling Stones and the band and shit like that. Um, but all the music in Bringing Out the Dead is like the Clash and like it's his most like punk soundtrack. And Which people, I love. I love yeah. punk. And it people were like, well. that's weird. <laughs> and I was like, mm, it makes sense if you know the dude. Yeah. Um, but I, I think the Rammstein music and, uh, Lost Highway works beautifully and perfectly, and it's such a great way of him conveying this kind of agitated terror in the final part of the movie, um, while being a bit more subtle with his visual language, um, and kind of really, really getting... It almost feels like a Rob Zombie movie in parts, and I love that. I love that you're able to get there. Um, Henry Rollins had a podcast for a little while... Which is great. Which is great. I love him. He's so smart and clever. He's so smart. He's so clever. He's so sexy and hot and super cool. Um, And he mentioned when uh, being on the set of Lost Highway, because he was on it for like all of two days, probably. Um, He plays a guard. He's in it for like 
a few scenes and he's great. Um, but he mentioned how on set, uh, everyone respects Lynch. Everyone's kind of very quiet and like respectful of the process. And when you're on set, it's a lot of very long takes and it's a lot of quiet in between takes. And he likes people to like really kind of wait and draw their lines out and stuff like that. But he was saying that as soon as Lynch called cut off of his megaphone over in the corner, that he would immediately yell into the megaphone, all right, cue the music, and then would, like, blast Rammstein as loud as possible on the set in between setups so that people could kind of get in the mood of the music. And Henry Rollins was, like, really weirded out that Lynch would be playing... That's this so stuff and he went up to him and he was like isn't it kind of loud and he's like what are you saying it's great <laughs> i love rammstein nine inch nails i'm so into that right now <laughs> i love like david lynch getting super into that kind of music i mean like i love the story about him famously walking out of a bob dylan concert because he was too high <laughs> like David Lynch's relationship to art and music is so fascinating to me because every time someone's like, oh, he clearly likes this, he immediately contradicts that. And is, I love watching interviews with him when, like, especially film journalists and critics will be like, well, your work is clearly influenced by the likes of, like, Bunuel and, you know, uh, and Cocteau. And you really go into the surrealism of these kind of filmmakers. And he's like, nope, never seen them. And you're just like... <laughs> Cool, David. I like the Wizard of Oz. And you're like, yep. I like like the clip of him and slash meme when someone's journalist is like, care to elaborate? And he just goes, no. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But that's also coming out of the tales of him saying, Eraserhead is my most spiritual film. Which, like, (laughs) I don't disagree, but also I can see why someone would ask him to want to elaborate that. Um... Yeah, the, like, if you know that he loves, 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 loves Wizard of Oz, then it kind of makes sense in a lot of, like, those, like, you know, old Hollywood movies. It makes sense a lot of the kind of tricks that he's playing in this. So the Wizard of Oz thing of, like, oh, someone is having a representational, stylized depiction of their life, and... Oh yeah, Uncle Cletus is the Tin Man, and all these, and you were there, and you were there, and you were there. Kind of explains a lot of the things that he does in Mulholland Drive, and in Empire, and in um, Lost Highway. Again, back to the Bill Pullman's line about like he doesn't like to remember things as they truly happen the way that video cameras do. He prefers uh, to have his own memories of things. There's a scene very early on. Where he's having sex with Patricia Arquette, which spo- which I will give warning: if you find uh, extended sex scenes and female nudity uncomfortable, this is not the movie for you. We this is get David Lynch's horniest movie, probably. I think Wild at Heart is still his horniest movie. Oh, true, but this is up there. I mean, but this, this is, is like right there. Yeah. Um, this is like a like aggro horny. This yeah. is where it's like, mm, this is a little too horny. Um. I but they—I don't think this could be hornier. <laughs> no, no, no. I I wildly agree with you, but it's yeah. this this movie has a great line about that because there's uh kind of two cops that are shattering Balthazar Getty, and he just keeps like hooking up with Patricia Arquette, and one of them says that boy gets more pussy than toilet seat, which is <laughs> such a Lynch line. Um, I have something to say about this because without spoiling it, this well, this is not really a spoiler because it's. The, the sex that he has with his wife in the beginning of the film like, is yeah. successful. 
he either loses his erection or something. Somehow it's disappointing. You don't see exactly what happens. You see their reaction to what's happening. Mm-hmm. So I and read- she like pats him on the shoulder and is like really like tight close up and it's seen yeah. as being like devastating to him. Yeah, I read a theory that I think is interesting. I don't know if I agree with it. That the entire Balthazar Getty story is Fred, aka Bill Pullman's fantasy because he's uh, not had successful sex with his wife. He's not feeling like a man. And so he has this whole elaborate fantasy where everyone in his life is recast in this noir film. Balthazar Getty is like a younger, more virile version of him caught in this like fantasy gangster story. His own wife is recast as this like femme fatale. Um, What do you think about that theory? I mean, I think that's kind of on the money, but it's not that directly tied to his his like sexual sexual performance i think that's part of it i think that's a small Mm -hmm. part of it but i think it has a lot more to do with regression and guilt and ptsd Mm. uh and kind of like to use a very the very twitter phrase mental gymnastics Mm -hmm. um because a lot of what his character is experiencing in this movie is um dissociation of personality and kind of coming to terms with his own actions and that's what a lot of the back half of this is. Something happens in the first half that he kind of... Two things happen that he kind of refuses to believe, uh, which kind of sparks off our Balthazar Getty narrative. Uh, and then pieces of that first section of the movie start to like leak in a little bit and causes Balthazar Getty headaches and problems and issues. Yeah. Um, and you know, things start to spiral out of control. Uh, things start to unravel and re-ravel in interesting ways. But the point that I wanted to bring up about that exact same sex scene is that we see it mostly from his perspective externally. Like, we, he's on top of her, so the only pits of uh, Patricia Arquette we see are, like, through his shoulder or something like that. And there's a really striking section of this where we see her really quickly underneath him with tears coming down her face. Um, And then it immediately cuts to his POV directly on top of her. And it's the the lens is a little like gauzier Mm -hmm. and she's like smiling and radiant. And that says so much about both this character and the Mm -hmm. like tricks that this movie is going to be pulling um, about perspective and about reality, uh, and it is so fucked up and gross, and it makes my skin fucking crawl watching that. The yeah. idea that this woman is, like, uncomfortable, emotionally compromised, and potentially in pain, and the only thing that this man can see is his fantasy, like, smacked on top of her, is painful. Yeah. The other thing that should be mentioned is that this movie was made in 97, um, and one, there Lynch, like we mentioned, doesn't like to talk about his creative process. <laughs> when you ask him to elaborate, he will say no. But he's mentioned a lot about the writing process of Lost Highway. And he specifically said that he'd been watching a lot of the OJ trial mm. while working on this. Interesting. Which comes through. There's even like a high-speed car chase at the end. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Uh, there's also a suggestion of infidelity. Um, 
there is, uh, like we mentioned with the Ming Stole cameo, a suggestion of a trial at one point. Um, uh, and, um, you know, this idea of spousal abuse is kind of like rampant and continuous throughout the movie in a lot of different ways. Yeah. Um, when we first meet Balthazar Getty, um, we don't know where he's been and he's kind of been in a fugue state. He doesn't remember anything until like the moment he's currently in. Um, and both his parents and his girlfriend, um, are saying, well, what happened that night? You, you were very violent that night. We've never Mm -hmm. seen this come over you before. Like we need, what, what were you doing? You were with some man that we've never seen before. And he was a very scary man. Uh, we could never forget his face. What were you doing with him? Why were you so violent? What happened? And it kind of suggests, um, kind of gets towards the nature of like, who is this man that Robert Blake is playing? Right. What is the importance of the places that he shows up? Uh, and what does he represent? At the end of the movie, we see him again and he brings up a video camera to his face and like menacingly walks towards uh Bill Pullman holding it's it. So scary. It's so it reminds me a lot of the end of Barton Fink, the oh, I will show yeah. you the life of the mind stuff. Yeah. Oh, horrifying. He's very similar to me to Bob in Twin Peaks in that yes. he's like um some sort of like demon or ghost that is pursuing the protagonists mm-hmm. uh, not that literally but like he has that sort of modus operandi yeah he's kind of got that like told book quality of like this may or may not be a real figure it is a representational of internalized something that people are starting to see uh and <laughs> does not represent good things yeah. he's also mentioned whenever people see him around they're always like oh yeah he's mr eddie's friend Right. He knows Mr. Eddie, and Mr. Eddie is Robert Loge's character, uh, who is uh, a gangster who may or may not have issues with anger and rage. There is a scene in this that is so satisfying, <laughs> where he is driving Balthazar Getty's, uh, Balthazar Getty and his like sports car, um, and someone t- his late eighties Mercedes Benz. Yeah. And someone starts to tailgate him on like Mulholland Drive or somewhere, and he <laughs> he runs this other car off the road and beats the shit out of this guy. And is like, don't tailgate ever again. Say you won't tailgate. Say you won't tailgate. And get a he, get a driver's driver's manual. Tell me you're gonna get a driver's manual. <laughs> I hate tailgaters and aggressive <laughs> drivers so much that it's like when i eventually die it will be because i was murdered when i followed somebody into a parking lot to tell them off for driving like a crazy person because i hate it so much i'm a very safe driver and in most scenarios i hate nerds and narcs but in one place i don't is driving like i hate people who drive too fast people in la drive like insane it's like mad max here and there's all sorts of things that so this is a, a little bit of a rant, but like everyone drives about 15 miles too fast in LA and then they'll slow down literally to a crawl to take a right hand turn. And it's so confusing to me. I've never experienced it in any other city. And it's like, you can take a turn at a normal pace. Also, 
oh god, maybe I've had too much coffee. But my boyfriend <laughs> is um, really obsessed with like roads and city design and stuff like this. And so from him, I learned this insane fact. I always assumed that speed limits were set by some sort of like safety expert or something like that. No. But in fact, at least in Los Angeles, I don't know about other places, speed limits are set at the speed at which people are already driving on that road. Mm-hmm. But that's a problem because everyone here drives too fast. So I learned how to drive in LA at the tender age of 35 or whatever. And I would be on a road and be like, oh, no, 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 this should not be 55 miles an hour. This should be like 35. And I just sensed that. And now I've gotten used to it, but I feel so vindicated by knowing that that is in fact too fast. <laughs> like all the speed limits are too high here and everyone's driving too fast. See, uh, speed limits can also be negotiated by um, neighborhoods, mm-hmm. um, by like property owners and stuff like that. Like um, neighborhood councils, and they can negotiate. Yeah. This is a very interesting topic to get into, um, can negotiate speed limits. And so, for instance, there is a part of Venice Boulevard that used to be a 40 mile an hour zone uh, that I drive on all the time. And then like was recently changed down to a 35. Mm. Uh, and it's also like, I'm so sorry that you learned to drive in Los Angeles. No one should have to go through that ever. You should <laughs> be able to so learn scary. to drive somewhere safe and easy. And then when you reach a certain level, you can come out here. And then Drusilla, once you've mastered LA, you can go do the Autobahn in Germany. When I tell you that scene from Clueless where they have to get onto the freeway, it's like, <laughs> it was exactly like that. Except I'm a 35 year old man in a Fiat. It's so, I'm um, so sorry for you. I love driving <laughs> a lot. Um, I'm not an angry driver. I'm a very safe driver, but I'm also a very strategic driver in that I will like, I do bob and weave my lanes, but I only like, I signal (laughs) people who don't signal should be beaten by Robert Loggia. Um, uh, and I very judicious about the way that I'm picking my lanes and things like that. Um, Mm. But I love driving, and driving in Los Angeles is something that I hated and hated and hated and hated, and there's a lot of assholes out here, and I'm convinced oh, that, like, that I've been in a, a horrible accident out here that I almost died in, uh, because of how bad LA drivers are. But also, like, it should be faster. Nope, speed limit should be higher. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, let's um, move on. This has been a tangent. This has been a tangent. But I love that scene. I r- love it's Robert so Loja. I also love that it starts by... This guy starts tailgating him, and his immediate response is kindness. He rolls the window down, he sticks his arm out, and he, like, kind of, he's like, go on, pass me, I'm slowing down, you can get past. And then the guy speeds up over, flips him off, and drives on. And as soon as that happens, the two, like, goons in the backseat, like, buckle in. (laughs) (laughs) And then it goes to, like... Saturday morning cartoon, like, early, like, silent film speed, where, like, the car goes way too fast, Robert Lowe just speeds up, cuts, oh my god, it's brilliant, it's amazing. I, when I saw that at the Los Feliz 3, the last week, and that scene happened, the audience was cheering through that entire beatdown. I loved it so much. so satisfying. After we saw the movie, uh, a friend that I took to it, um who's a big, gigantic Lynch fan, she's seen, like, all of his stuff multiple, multiple times, confessed to me afterwards that she'd never finished Lost Highway. That every time she'd go to watch it, and she was very ashamed of this, that she, like, would only get to certain parts of it and then, like, nod off. Because, like, 
if you haven't seen this movie before, the first bit is very slow, mm-hmm. and it's, like, frustratingly slow. Once you've seen the movie and you know what's going on, it's much... It moves at a better speed, but it is very frustrating in the beginning. Uh, and But... So she never finished it until that moment. Uh, and immediately after, we went to go get, like, food with some friends, and she was like, this is better than Mulholland Drive. This is better than... No, I'd be better than Blue Velvet. Mm. This is one of his best movies. What the hell? Um, And I don't disagree. I love Mulholland Drive to pieces. I think it is brilliant. But I think... Lost Highway really sets up a lot of the ideas that he does in his later movies. Yes. Here. Like, all of that, like, Blue Velvet, Wild at Heart world of, like, we're very throwback... But we're pretty mm-hmm. linear narrative, and things are going to get weird. But it kind of like has an internalized logic. He gets Twin Peaks and Firewalk with me really let him get a bit wider in his scope and his storytelling. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's kind of crystallized in Lost Highway, and then experimented with further in Mulholland Drive, and especially in Linden Empire and Twin Peaks: The Return. And so I think this is a really important like junction for him. Like. I agree. To see that progression, like, a lot of it is happening here. In the same way that you can kind of watch that happening in Almodovar's career in the 90s, where, like... Absolutely. Atome and Women on the Verge happened, and then... how? But how did we get to All About My Mother and Talk to Her? Well, we have Kika, and we have Flower of My Secret, and Live Flesh happening in between. Just no one saw those movies, yeah. and those are really, really important for the ideas. Um I think Lost Highway is great. I love the Arquette sisters so much. R.I.P. Alexis. I yeah. I love Rosanna. I love Patricia. Seeing them in this, seeing her in this is so beautiful. She plays her two parts amazingly. They are two completely independent and distinct characters. Um, and honestly, like, I know Balthazar Getty is only known for, like, what? His Lord of the Flies movie? Mm-hmm. And being stupid rich. Um, he's great in kind of that, like, early Charlie Sheen, um, we couldn't, (laughs) we couldn't get Skeet Ulrich, he was busy shooting Scream, who else do you got, kind of (laughs) way. He's that very, like, 90s actor. Another person that I had a big crush on, because this movie's been forgotten, but I was so obsessed with this movie when I was, like, 12, called Where the Day Takes You. Starring uh, Dermot Mulrooney, oh my Laura God. Flynn Boyle, oh my God. Shan, Sean Astin, uh, Will Smith in his first movie, David Arquette, and Balthazar Getty. And it's a movie what? about homeless teens in LA, and Balthazar Getty plays like a 15-year-old gay escort. This so is like a huge crush on him. All of your favorite things. I know, I know. A I super know. 90s cast about teenage runaways and delinquents. <laughs> I know, I know. Is it's this like, a Joshua Conkle film? It was a Joshua Conkle film. Unfortunately, the soundtrack is pretty bad. It's all Melissa Etheridge and Guns N' Roses, which are two artists that I'm like, whoa, about? Well, I like Guns N' Roses. I like Guns N' Roses, too, to be honest. But, um, but yeah, and I, in fact, after watching this, I googled Balthazar Getty 2022. And he's still hot. Holy shit. He's silver hair. He's still hot. Fox. Like, yeah. oh, gorgeous. When he shows up in Twin Peaks The Return... I, my jaw hit the floor. I was I like, ooh. I haven't watched that yet. I need to watch that. Joshua! I know, I know, I know. He is... Twin Because the Return really is just, like, a greatest hits of Lynch actors 
because it's like, okay, well, Balthazar Getty's back. Here's um, Naomi Watts. Here's mm. Laura Dern. Here's M- Matthew Lillard for some reason giving the best performance of his life. Like, but it's no amazing. Audrey Horn, I hear. No, Audrey Horn's there. Oh, she is. Okay, great. she has. She's in two episodes. Okay, good. Uh, her character's not in a good place, but she's there. Well, that's all I need. I just yeah. need my Sherilyn Finn fix. Sherilyn Finn is there. Uh, yes. Um, well, listen. I think it's time to play our favorite game, the game where we speculate wildly whether notable figures have seen the feature. Have they seen it? I'll go first. I have someone. He's in the movie. Do you think Richard Pryor saw this movie? <laughs> <laughs> so I have a lot. My like every time I think about Richard Pryor, and especially when I watch Lost Highway, I'm always like, Richard Pryor was dead by '97. This is not true. <laughs> Richard Pryor lived quite a little bit longer Uh, (laughs) but in my brain I'm like yeah he just like died in the early 90s right no Um, so whenever he shows up in this I'm like oh my god Richard Pryor's ghost Um, he probably saw it he probably went to the premiere I I have no idea what Richard Pryor made of this I assume he liked it like man had taste for days no idea. Um, and like, as we don't know anything about Richard Pryor, really. He's like a little bit before my time. Um, very good stand up, very funny, set a house on fire, got clean, uh, made a, he made a really, really great movie about himself. It's like a biopic about a stand up comedian that he directed and stars in. And it's really, really, really good. Um, uh, he had a relationship with Marlon Brando. Like a sexual relationship? Yep. Oh, wow. As has been recently. I, I don't know if it was a relationship as much as maybe they definitely hooked up a few times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, which is fascinating to That's me. I to need to know more about that. Um, but yeah, I, I always like, I grew up being exposed to Richard Pryor from like, he wrote Blazing Saddles, all the Mongo stuff. Yeah, and I love all of like Silver Streak and um, Hear No Evil, See No Evil, and like all of those um, movies that he did with um, Gene Wilder, and then yeah. you know Car Wash and stuff like that. Um, I didn't really see his stand up until later. Um, I mean, I love him, and he's great. He's like really, really, really essential in knowing of like a very specific kind of era um, of comedy. Um, but he's so baffling in this movie. I, I have no clue what he would make of Lynch. I assume he liked it and he liked Lynch. That's why he's in this. Like a yeah, part of the reason that, that this movie has such great and wild cameos is that this movie was 20 years after Eraserhead. Mm-hmm. Like exactly. So this is the point where like, he's not casting young Laura Dern and, um, Kyle MacLachlan and they're like golly gee willikers who's this new David guy in the scene he made the elephant man that sure got Oscar nominations we'll work with him it's not that anymore it's like people have seen Twin Peaks people have seen Blue Velvet people have seen Wild at Heart he like had cult status for the first time while making this movie so like Henry Rollins is a fan like a lot of these people were fans going in so I have to assume that Pryor was too yeah, and it's hard to understate, or overstate, rather, 
what an impact Twin Peaks had in the 90s. I was too young to watch it on air, but even as like a 10-year-old, it was constantly being referenced by everywhere. Everyone's parents was were watching it. It was being referenced on like SNL and The Simpsons like, like, comedy shows. Yeah, exactly. So it made a huge cultural impact. Mm-hmm. No, he was he had a lot of cachet at this point, which is yeah. I mean, part of the reason why this movie kind of like leverages so many like familiar faces and a lot of like big name music. Despite the fact that it was made on, like, basically no budget. And the house in the movie is Lynch's house. Um, Yeah. It's when you see the exterior of that, like, very brutalist, dry house, you're like, yeah, he would live there. He would live there. (laughs) Yes. Um, So I want to know, considering that uh, Fred Madison is an experimental jazz musician who, uh, as he likes to pl- say, his axe is tenor. Tenor sax. <laughs> um, do you think that famed saxophone performer Kenny G has seen Lost Highway? <laughs> <laughs> uh, Kenny G played at the Paramount Theater when I worked there as an usher in college. And before the concert, I kept telling my boss, I'm going to touch his hair. <laughs> And she was like, you better not. And I'm, like, I'm going to do it. I'm going to touch his hair as he goes by. And then I chickened out. Um, but in answer to your question, no. I think Kimmy G's too boring. I, I, And I don't know anything about him as a person, to be fair. But in my mind, he's like a really boring person. Um, yeah, I mean... So I would say no. I can't imagine him not being uh, super boring, but... And also the kind of jazz that Fred in the movie plays is so chaotic and experimental. Mm-hmm. I feel like it's the it's like so far away from what Kenny G does. That yeah. I feel like it's not it's not really comparable. I have another one if you okay. have one. No, go ahead. Um so speaking speaking of how I always assume that uh Richard Pryor is dead by this point, there's someone else who's very famous that I always assume was dead by 97 but is not. Um he didn't die until 2002, and he famously directed some of the most famous Hollywood films of all time, a lot of which Lynch really, really looks up to and pays homage to in this and Mulholland Drive, um, specifically Double Indemnity and um, Sunset Boulevard. So, do you think uh, Billy Wilder ever saw Lost Highway? <laughs> I My gut says yes. Um... I feel like Billy Wilder, you know, he's a movie person. So, like, Billy Wilder sees everything, no? Yeah, I I liked, I liked to think that, like, late in life, very much in the style of the holiday. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. <laughs> Eli yeah. Waller's character? Yeah. Billy Wilder's, like, living alone, and someone's like, let's go to Blockbuster, Billy. Let's go rent <laughs> some new releases. And they get a tape of Lost Highway, and Billy Wilder watches it. Um, what do you think his reaction would be to I this movie? He, I think he would like it. Do you disagree? I, I think Billy Wilder would fucking hate this movie. <laughs> I think the incredibly explicit sex, I think the, like, direct visual references to his movies mm-hmm. and the Rammstein I, and, like, the pace of the beginning, I think he would hate it. I think he would think hate, he would hate, hate it, hate it, hate it, hate it. I think he would think he was an insult. I think he would think Lynch was unoriginal. I Billy Wilder was also famously a bit of a cunt. Mm-hmm. Like, I he said that. some really gross things about Marilyn Monroe. Um, oh. He famously directed her in Some Like It Hot and The Seven Year Itch. Oh, 
Like right. the most iconic images of her were lensed by him. Um, but he also famously like shat talked Peter Bogdanovich like publicly for years through all of the seventies. Well, Peter Bogdanovich was like kind of a dick too. Peter Bogdanovich was also kind of a dick, but not in the seventies. In the seventies, he was like squeaky clean, like upstart boy. It wasn't until he got older that he was started becoming a dick. Yeah. Like we started like well, after his wife was murdered <laughs> and he started working with Cher and stuff like that, that's when he started getting a little like a bit standoffish and hanging out with yeah. Orson Welles a bunch. Uh, but Billy like in the early seventies, Billy Wilder said some gross things in the tabloids about um um oh god, what's her name? From Taxi Driver. Um who um Carol Kane? N- Carol Kane is not in Taxi Driver, she's in Taxi. Oh. <laughs> the show. Um, oh my god, she was in the Last Picture Show. She dated uh, Bogdanovich for a year. Oh, this is gonna bug the crap out of me, and then I'm gonna see your Sybil name. Sybil Shepherd. Sybil Shepherd. He Billy Wilder says some really gross things about Bogdanovich and Sybil Shepherd, and like, and uh, calling his movies derivative and lazy. Um, so I could kind of see him watching Lost Highway and being like offended. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he did. On the other hand, love women on the verge of a nervous breakdown and write El Motive or a fan letter. So, ah, that's a different thing, though. It's a very different thing. Yeah, I yeah, I like to imagine Billy Wilder clutching his pearls through Lost Highway, <laughs> <laughs> just a little angry German man being very upset and very verklempt at this movie. Right. Well. I think that's it for this episode of Blood House. If you like this show, please rate us on all the things. You can follow us on socials, Blood House Pod. You can email us at bloodhousepod at gmail. If, if you go over, and watch Lost it. Highway, please uh, hit us up on social media and give us your interpretations of this movie. Yes, this we movie want to know. is very much a Rorschach test. I have a very specific view of its meaning and the events of the film. A lot of people have their own interpretations. We want to know yours. This movie yes, is an please. open slate. Yep. Drusilla, where can people find you? Uh, you can find me over at Hyde Sister, H-Y-D-E-S-I-S-T-E-R, like the Robert Louis Stevenson villain, uh, over on Instagram, and Sister Hyde Design is my website, if you want to go check out that Bodies, Bodies, Bodies poster. Um, and I'm also on Letterboxd to see all the pretentious movies and DC superhero girls movies I've been watching lately. What about you, Josh? I am at Joshua Conkle on Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd. Drusilla, what are we watching next week? We are taking a little trip up to Point Dune next week to watch a little movie called Messiah of Evil. Ugh, can't wait. All right, thank you so much. 